Our sermon series on hospitality, healing begins with hospitality. It concludes today uh, when we set out to construct and plan this sermon series. We did so last fall and we brought in a lot of groups who met alongside our staff, our program staff, and uh, leaders and members and volunteers within this church and, and others from around the community. They represented various Sunday school classes and areas of interest and, and vocations. And they brought such a rich perspective uh, to this entire um, series. Uh, and, and I thought when we launched it as a sermon series, it would, it would be perfect to um, have 800 plus people in worship, uh, to have 25 or 30 or more groups meeting uh, who could run with this idea of hospitality and healing. Uh, and I just thought the response would be absolutely overwhelming. Uh, instead, uh, I have become the most radically inhospitable minister by saying, we're going to do this series, but you can't be here. Stay away, right? It's just so ironic. Um, but I do think we must find ways, friends, to find humor in these times, and just know that we're going to get through all of this uh, together. With that said, as we conclude this series, Healing Begins with Hospitality, I invite you to stand as you are able for the gospel lesson today. It comes from the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Listen for the word of the Lord. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But even wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And then Jesus said, So come to me. All you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, what are the chances that today's gospel lection, year A, begins with such a pointedly apropos question on the very weekend where we are celebrating America? To what shall I compare this generation? Jesus said that. It's quite Shakespearean, although 1,500 years too early. To what shall I compare this generation? It's Jesus' way, I think, of sizing people up, walking around them like a drill sergeant and giving them the once over. What am I supposed to make of you all, of y'all, Jesus might say? I actually wonder how many preachers are preaching this text on the 4th of July for that reason, knowing that Jesus is saying, 
your generation has been assessed and you have come up short. We cannot help, friends, but to read this text through the lenses of our own context, we might want to socially distance ourselves from Jesus' evaluation of his generation and of our generation, but too much of his purpose in asking holds true. And just maybe, the celebration of our independence is the precise time to reevaluate loyalties of which kingdom are we a part? By what tune are we wooed? Uh, this reading, it doesn't sound a whole lot like good news. You know, gospel means good news. It's supposed to be good news. But when we hear about the children of the land playing glad and celebratory songs, but no one is dancing, or when the children are playing a dirge and no one mourns, we must pause and ask ourselves, why can't the children be heard? Why won't the adults listen to the children? Or maybe more broadly, why can't we hear one another? The other day, I had a moment of shock and awe where I honestly found myself saying about a particular kind of music I was hearing, a modern, like, what kind of music is that? That's not real music. The kind of music from the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know. And as soon as I said that, I felt so old. And then I discovered this new social media platform or two or three. And I thought, my goodness, I'm just now figuring out Facebook and Twitter. To which someone said, hey, bro, those are like a decade old. Touche. Thanks. I'm not as in tune, maybe not listening to the younger generations as much as I need to. Well, then there were those live feeds from cities all across this country where youth and young adults flocked to the streets to pray and to protest. Some looted and some rioted. Some of those young people, they said, when we were silent and, and took a knee in public, no one listened, so now our instruments must play louder. You can dance if you like. You may weep if you must, but please listen to us. And I think the country has listened. I do think change is happening. Some like it. Others despise it. And so I wonder if Jesus and John, about whom this passage is actually written, I wonder if they faced that same dilemma in their generation. So much noise, so little listening. So much frenetic division and lines being drawn. So little time spent on what matters most. I didn't read verses 2 through 15, but they show how this narrative of Jesus and John, it just weaves throughout the gospel. Their, their two ministries, they are so akin in, in so many ways, um, revolutionary, uh, forthright, but their approach was so incredibly different. It's, it's quite the sociological and theological analysis of how similar they are, but also how uh, different. John, as you know, came demanding and preaching repentance, but the people were not ready for that level of expectation. 
The people had their own tune by which they were being lulled. Why bother with some tune that meant change? That's what repent means, to change your mind, to do a 180 degree turn. Why bother with John's tune? Change is hard. But then Jesus said, I've come to make all things new, meaning change is part of our Christian composition. Well, then Jesus came and he was proclaiming good news of the kingdom of heaven and all people having access to God and that there were no longer barriers, that we are all one in Christ our Lord. He said, take and eat and fellowship and change the world. But the people were not ready for that song either. That type of music was, was too progressive. It was too loud. There's too much techno in that beat. The people were comfortable with, with Facebook. They were not ready to snap the chat and tick the talk. They, that Jesus fella needed to pipe down and play by the rules of the day and not bring his own rules. John came and he was accused of, of being too strict, too ascetic, too gloom and doom, too far right, too hard. The bar was too high. Jesus came and they accused him of being too loose, a glutton, a drunkard, too worldly. John was too serious. Jesus was not serious enough. That generation, would you believe that they hated sermons on repentance and they despised sermons on inclusion? No matter what the scenario, the people would not be satisfied as those lines continued to be drawn David Bland's work on this text has been really helpful this week. He says the Messiah had come and the people did not recognize him because they were too busy quarreling about childish games. And those childish games people continue to play are legion, for they are many. Ooh. Exhausting are the multitude of ways we are lulled by all the wrong songs and pulled in so many different directions. And I don't know about you, but these days I really am just tired. I'm exhausted emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, relationally, not only because I can't be with you all and we're trying to figure out how to do production during this COVID time and all of that, but just by all of the noise. And I don't know how to keep up, what to say, what not to say, what phrases are hot button items and which ones do no harm and which ones actually do good. It doesn't mean that I'm unwilling to put in the hard work to figure it all out. It just means that I, like you, am tired because the symphony of our national culture plays a mighty loud and convincing tune, which is right, which is wrong. Do I dance? Do I weep? And then I remember, Jay, Jesus is not speaking to you, to individuals. He's speaking to a society. He does not say, but to what shall I compare you? He says, but shall what will I do or to how will I compare this generation, this society, this people who have somehow failed to respond to a song that is so utterly clear with all the noise the song has been ever before us. And so on this holiday weekend, 
I ask myself, in what ways has our generation understood or misunderstood the reasons for dancing and the reasons for weeping? Do we dance when we should mourn for a world whose burden is heavy and for a people who desperately need rest? The church, Big C, the church, Big C, is, is not exempt from being wooed by the songs of the present age. Uh, Bland, whom I just referenced, he continues when he says, uh, you know, we often hear that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want any part of that. And it sets us up an us and them dualism, right? Or worship is, is so traditional and it's boring, or worship is so much like entertainment with the lights and the cameras and the action. Or I just don't like that preacher's style. It's too academic. It's too colloquial. He smiles too much. He doesn't smile enough. Or I don't agree with those renovations. I wasn't ever asked to be a part of something. I'm asked to be a part of everything. We should have started regathering long ago. We should wait a little bit longer. We have too much money, not enough money. We have too much space. We need more space. And it becomes this volleyball or tennis match, back and forth, back and forth, and we get so caught up in these songs and in this game that sometimes we take our eye off the ball, off the most important message that is right before us. So much so that churches become entangled in those webs, and we quickly find that the important stuff finds its ways to the margin or to the shadows or it just withers and dies. And so amid this type turmoil in his own generation, Jesus did something that was really earth shattering. He prayed. Novel idea, really. He turns to God and he says, thank you, Father. Actually, he says, praise you, Father. That's the word that he uses in Greek. So Jesus is saying it's really not about worship wars. It's about praise and worship of the heart. Father, I praise you that despite all the noise, despite all this other wisdom and all this other intellect and all this other stuff out here, that you have not revealed it to any of those but to these infants, these little ones. And they're those little ones. They show up again. <laughs> The ones to whom the cold cup of water should be given. The disposition to which we should aspire. Because unless we become like one of those little ones, we will never inherit the kingdom of God. I don't entirely believe this is a matter of age or size or children. I think that's part of it. But I think those little ones can be anyone willing to listen and to learn and to lament and to hear and to see God's work all around us and in front of us, despite all that's trying to pull us apart from God and from ourselves and from one another. Because at the end of the day, if you have children, you know that little ones hear and see the world differently. I, I know I shared this when I served here as an associate minister, and I've talked to some of you 
uh, about this wonderful phenomenon. But several years ago, gosh, many years ago now, uh, the clergy staff, when I was an associate pastor here, we attended a conference in Texas for large membership churches. And at one of the plenary sessions, uh, the speaker was Kenda Creasy Dean, whose work I commend to you. She does tremendous uh, research and writing uh, on family matters and rearing youth. Uh, her book is um, almost Christian. I think every, uh, every parent, every household who has teenagers should read Almost Christian. It's phenomenal. Um, but she conducted an exercise in a plenary session of several hundred people that was related to the mosquito ringtone. Have you heard about this? Yes, a few of you have heard about this, probably from me, so if I'm restating it, please forgive me. Um, there are frequencies of tones that only certain people, particularly little ones, children and youth, can hear. So Kenda had, she had everyone stand up, and she started popping off different frequencies. And basically, generation by generation, began to sit down uh, when they couldn't hear the tone that was playing. And I was in that Gen X category, and I don't hear well anyway, so I sat down fairly early. Eventually, the only people left standing were the children who were dragged to the conference by their mamas against their will, but they were surprised to become the heroes because they could hear the mosquito ringtone and nobody else could. All that to say, one, can't wait to do the mosquito ringtone experiment in person with everyone. Two, do we reach a point where willingly or otherwise we lose the ability to hear the mosquito ringtone of the gospel at work all around us? Well, how's that from some happy news uh, on this holiday weekend when I know all we're thinking really about is, is barbecue and homemade ice cream and that kind of thing. Um, but for me, if I'm being honest, this dualistic battle between competing songs is absolutely dividing us in so many scary directions. And it is exhausting, whether it's worship wars or social activism versus silence or nationalism versus globalism or the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, uh, you know, blurring the lines between our loyalties of God's kingdom and the kingdoms that we create for ourselves. It's a dangerous type game. It may seem childish, but it's dangerous. There's a song, I'm afraid, that is, it began playing quite softly but a slow crescendo is, is forming. And I don't want to sound all doom and gloom fearful, but we've lost our ability in some way to hear the mosquito ringtone gospel message that's around us, willingly or otherwise. And this new song is replacing that ability to hear or to be heard. This new song is one of, of anger and divisiveness and sides and contempt and malice. And that song, my friends, is the song that sings, we must be on this side or that side, Republican or Democrat, black lives matter, all lives matter, pro this, anti that, us, them, you, me. The volley match continues. The songs are trying to woo us from the one thing that is important to Jesus Christ more than anything else, and that is people, especially people in the margins those who are oppressed, those who are the least and the last and the lost. And we get caught up so much in these winds and these songs of division that we forget to see people as people. We forget to see 
people as created in the image of God. We forget to actually be the church by preaching the gospel with our hands and our feet, a starting point for all authentic peace and reconciliation. Somebody should say amen to that. Jesus saw it then, he sees it now. And his response is quite simple. Come, come to me with all that's pulling you apart, with all that's trying to divide my bride called the church, with all that's trying to dismember the body of Christ, remember and hear the invitation to hospitality and healing. Come and I will give you rest. I will make sure that you rest. I believe there's a case to be made that Jesus refused to get caught up in the wrong dividing lines. He knew when to draw the line. He knew what was right and wrong and what really mattered, especially when it uh, pertained to defending those who could not defend themselves. But instead, his way forward was, was something different. It was rest and it was peace. And we need to rest in the shelter of the Most High God. It is, it is time for the church to rest and lay to rest the divisive rhetoric that damages families and friends and floods our social media feeds. We need rest from the prevailing winds which pressure the church into being something inauthentic to our calling. We need rest from the cultural persuasion which says, go, 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 and do, 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 program more, and do not stop long enough to listen to the songs being played by the little ones among you, for those are the most important songs. We need rest from all of the hate and the bitterness and the loaded language and the divisive behavior. Rest from everything that's trying to deafen and divide us from hearing and being the church of Jesus Christ in this world. That heavy burden, friends, of always having to be right and always having to climb over somebody or be one step ahead of somebody, it is absolutely exhausting. Let it go. Here's how committed I am to resting from everything that the world tells me I need to labor for. Tomorrow is Monday. We're, we'll be coming off a holiday weekend and most everybody will be going back um, into work with a gusto and excitement, right? Probably not. I know a lot of people right now are away uh, at various places for the holiday weekend. You'll be traveling some. You'll be catching up this weekend you have with family and with friends. and. And, you know, glued to social media to see who has the best homemade ice cream recipe. I get it. But for a lot of people, holiday weekends are not times of rest. They're times of stress. Especially when we politicize something like COVID or a mask. Um, or we sit around and talk about the upcoming November elections over a glass of sweet tea. And all of a sudden it's tumultuous. So what I'm doing tomorrow is giving our staff the day off for a mental health day. I discovered that uh, by following the leadership of Bishop David Graves at the conference office. And so one year ago, this very weekend, when I arrived here at First United Methodist Church, I, I met very quickly with uh, the SPR, and I told them how important that is, that a couple of times a year, our staff uh, take what's called a mental health day. So I told the staff just earlier this week that on Monday, we are paying them not to look at their phone. No social media, no emails, no work-related calls, 
Don't come into the office, but just rest and hear Jesus's song saying, come to me and lay down that burden. So I want you to pray for our staff tomorrow as we take a day to rest in Christ. We're trying to lead by example, and I hope that, that you will find time to do the same. We're practicing this Matthew 11 discipline. I don't know what our staff will be up to tomorrow. Maybe they'll lounge in a hammock all day long or eat homemade ice cream from all the recipes they found on social media the day before. Or maybe they'll paint a portrait or exercise, or maybe, maybe they'll reach out and talk to someone because they need to be heard. I don't know. But that's how committed I am and I want our church to be to healing and hospitality and rest in Christ by laying down the burdens that divide us far too often. Just last week, you heard the, the choir sing the song. I love it. It's so endeared to me. Healing begins with hospitality, and we no longer are a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. So Jesus' invitation to rest is to come home. I love that hymn. Come home, come home. All who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O oh sinner, come home. Healing begins with hospitality. May you be blessed in your rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.